Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton Part 1 On the Creature Called Man Chapter 1 The Man in the Cave Part 3 It is the simple truth that man does differ from the brutes in kind and not in degree. And the proof of it is here, that it sounds like a truism to say that the most primitive man drew a picture of a monkey, and that it sounds like a joke to say that the most intelligent monkey drew a picture of a man. Something of division and disproportion has appeared, and it is unique. Art is the signature of man. That is the sort of simple truth with which a story of the beginnings ought really to begin. The evolutionist stands staring in the painted cavern at the things that are too large to be seen and too simple to be understood. He tries to deduce all sorts of other indirect and doubtful things from the details of the pictures, because he cannot see the primary significance of the whole. Thin and theoretical deductions about the absence of religion or the presence of superstition about tribal government, and hunting, and human sacrifice, and heaven knows what. In the next chapter, I shall try to trace in a little more detail the much-disputed question about these prehistoric origins of human ideas, and especially of the religious idea. Here, I am only taking this one case of the cave as a sort of symbol of the simpler sort of truth with which the story ought to start. When all is said, the main fact that the record of the reindeer men attests, along with all other records, is that the reindeer man could draw, and the reindeer could not. If the reindeer man was as much an animal as the reindeer, it was all the more extraordinary that he could do what all other animals could not. If he was an ordinary product of biological growth, like any other beast or bird, then it is all the more extraordinary that he was not in the least like any other beast or bird. He seems rather more supernatural as a natural product than as a supernatural one. But I have begun this story in the cave, like the cave of the speculations of Plato, because it is a sort of model of the mistake of merely evolutionary introductions and prefaces. It is useless to begin by saying that everything was slow and smooth, and a mere matter of development and degree. For in a plain matter like the pictures, there is in fact not a trace of any such development or degree. Monkeys did not begin pictures, and men finished them. Pithecanthropus did not draw a reindeer badly, and Homo sapiens draw it well. The higher animals did not draw better and better portraits. The dog did not paint better in his best period than in his early bad manner as a jackal. The wild horse was not an impressionist, and the racehorse a post-impressionist. All we can say of this notion of reproducing things in shadow, or representative shape, is that it exists nowhere in nature except in man, and that we cannot even talk about it without treating man as something separate from nature. In other words, Every sane sort of history must begin with man as man, a thing standing absolute and alone. How he came there, or indeed how anything else came there, 
is a thing for theologians and philosophers and scientists, and not for historians. But an excellent test case of this isolation and mystery is the matter of the impulse of art. This creature was truly different from all other creatures, because he was a creator as well as a creature. Nothing in that sense could be made in any other image but the image of man. But the truth is so true that, even in the absence of any religious belief, it must be assumed in the form of some moral or metaphysical principle. In the next chapter, we shall see how this principle applies to all the historical hypotheses and evolutionary ethics now in fashion, to the origins of tribal government or mythological belief. But the clearest and most convenient example to start with is this popular one of what the caveman really did in his cave. It means that somehow or other a new thing had appeared in the cavernous night of nature, a mind that is like a mirror. It is like a mirror because it is truly a thing of reflection. It is like a mirror because in it alone all the other shapes can be seen, like shining shadows in a vision. Above all, it is like a mirror because it is the only thing of its kind. Other things may resemble it, or resemble each other in various ways. Other things may excel it, or excel each other in various ways. Just as in the furniture of a room a table may be round like a mirror, or a cupboard may be larger than a mirror, but the mirror is the only thing that can contain them all. Man is the microcosm. Man is the measure of all things. Man is the image of God. These are the only real lessons to be learnt in the cave, and it is time to leave it for the open road. It will be well in this place, however, to sum up once and for all what is meant by saying that man is at once the exception to everything, and the mirror and the measure of all things. But to see man as he is, it is necessary once more to keep close to that simplicity that can clear itself of accumulated clouds of sophistry. The simplest truth about man is that he is a very strange being, almost in the sense of being a stranger on the earth. In all sobriety, he has much more of the external appearance of one bringing alien habits from another land than of a mere growth of this one. He has an unfair advantage and an unfair disadvantage. He cannot sleep in his own skin. He cannot trust his own instincts. He is at once a creator, moving miraculous hands and fingers, and a kind of cripple. He is wrapped in artificial bandages called clothes. He is propped on artificial crutches called furniture. His mind has the same doubtful liberties and the same wild limitations. Alone among the animals, he is shaken with the beautiful madness called laughter, as if he had caught sight of some secret in the very shape of the universe hidden from the universe itself. Alone among the animals, he feels the need of averting his thoughts from the root realities of his own bodily being, of hiding them, as in the presence of some higher possibility which creates the mystery of shame. Whether we praise these things as natural to man, or abuse them as artificial in nature, they remain, in the same sense, unique. This is realized by the whole popular instinct called religion, until disturbed by pedants, especially the laborious pedants of the simple life. The most sophistical of all sophists 
are gymnosophists. It is not natural to see man as a natural product. It is not common sense to call man a common object of the country or the seashore. It is not seeing straight to see him as an animal. It is not sane. It sins against the light, against that broad daylight of proportion which is the principle of all reality. It is reached by stretching a point, by making out a case, by artificially selecting a certain light and shade, by bringing into prominence the lesser or lower things which may happen to be similar. The solid thing, standing in the sunlight, the thing we can walk round and see from all sides, is quite different. It is also quite extraordinary, and the more sides we see of it, the more extraordinary it seems. It is emphatically not a thing that follows or flows naturally from anything else. If we imagine that an inhuman or impersonal intelligence could have felt from the first the general nature of the non-human world sufficiently to see that things would evolve in whatever way they did evolve, there would have been nothing whatever in all that natural world to prepare such a mind for such an unnatural novelty. To such a mind, man would most certainly not have seen something like one herd out of a hundred herds finding richer pasture or one swallow out of a hundred swallows making a summer under a strange sky. It would not be in the same scale and scarcely in the same dimension. We might as truly say that it would not be in the same universe. It would be more like seeing one cow out of a hundred cows suddenly jump over the moon, or one pig out of a hundred pigs grow wings in a flash and fly. It would not be a question of the cattle finding their own grazing ground, but of their building their own cattle sheds. Not a question of one swallow making a summer, but of his making a summer house. For the very fact that birds do build nests is one of those similarities that sharpen the startling difference. The very fact that a bird can get as far as building a nest and cannot get any farther proves that he has not a mind as man has a mind. It proves it more completely than if he built nothing at all. If he built nothing at all, he might possibly be a philosopher of the quietest, or Buddhistic school, indifferent to all but the mind within. But when he builds as he does build, and is satisfied, and sings aloud with satisfaction, then we know there is really an invisible veil, like a pane of glass between him and us like the window on which a bird will beat in vain. But suppose our abstract onlooker saw one of the birds begin to build as men build. Suppose, in an incredibly short space of time, there were seven styles of architecture for one style of nest. Suppose the bird carefully selected forked twigs and pointed leaves to express the piercing piety of Gothic, but turned to broad foliage, and black mud when he sought in a darker mood to call up the heavy columns of Bel and Ashtaroth, making his nest indeed one of the hanging gardens of Babylon. Suppose the bird made little clay statues of birds, celebrated in letters or politics, and stuck them up in front of the nest. Suppose that one bird out of a thousand birds began to do one of the thousand things that man had already done even in the morning of the world and we can be quite certain that the onlooker would not regard such a bird as a mere evolutionary variety of the other birds. He would regard it as a very fearful wildfowl indeed. 
possibly as a bird of ill omen. Certainly as an omen. That bird would tell the augurs, not of something that would happen, but of something that had happened. That something would be the appearance of a mind with a new dimension of depth, a mind like that of man. If there be no God, no other mind could conceivably have foreseen it. Now, as a matter of fact, there is not a shadow of evidence that this thing was evolved at all. There is not a particle of proof that this transition came slowly, or even that it came naturally. In a strictly scientific sense, we simply know nothing whatever about how it grew, or whether it grew, or what it is. There may be a broken trail of stones and bones faintly suggesting the development of the human body. There is nothing even faintly suggesting such a development of this human mind. It was not, and it was. We know not in what instant, or in what infinity of years. Something happened, and it has all the appearance of a transition outside time. It has, therefore, nothing to do with history in the ordinary sense. The historian must take it, or something like it, for granted. It is not his business as a historian to explain it. But if he cannot explain it as a historian, he will not explain it as a biologist. In neither case is there any disgrace to him in accepting it without explaining it. For it is a reality, and history and biology deal with realities. He is quite justified in calmly confronting the pig with wings and the cow that jumped over the moon, merely because they have happened. He can reasonably accept man as a freak, because he accepts man as a fact. He can be perfectly comfortable in a crazy and disconnected world, or in a world that can produce such a crazy and disconnected thing. For reality is a thing in which we can all repose, even if it hardly seems related to anything else. The thing is there, and that is enough for most of us. But if we do indeed want to know how it can conceivably have come there, if we do indeed wish to see it related realistically to other things, if we do insist on seeing it evolved before our very eyes from an environment nearer to its own nature, then assuredly it is to very different things that we must go. We must stir very strange memories and return to very simple dreams if we desire some origin that can make man other than a monster. We shall have discovered very different causes before he becomes a creature of causation, and invoked other authority to turn him into something reasonable, or even into anything probable. That way lies all that is at once awful and familiar and forgotten, with dreadful faces thronged in fiery arms. We can accept man as a fact, if we are content with an unexplained fact. We can accept him as an animal, if we can live with a fabulous animal. But if we must needs have sequence and necessity, then indeed we must provide a prelude and crescendo of mounting miracles that ushered in with unthinkable thunders in all the seven heavens of another order. A man may be an ordinary thing. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, twill be in the valley of love and delight.
When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right. <laughs>